Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, like I said at the beginning of the service, we've got those ESV Bibles out there right outside the door if you want to grab one of those, if it's helpful for you, if you don't have one there with you to keep an eye on as we move along. Luke 22, we'll look at verses 31 through 46. And um, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin there, if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, as we move along. Luke 22, verses 31 through 46. Um, the storm a few weeks ago, so it brought a tree down in our yard, one that was right next to the house. Praise the Lord, didn't hit the house or anything, just landed in the yard. But uh, me and a couple of neighbors went out there with chainsaws and cut it up and, um, and made quick work of it. So thankful for that. But when I took the chainsaw out, I hadn't used it in a while. It was probably last winter in Maine when I used it. And I noticed that one of the screws that holds the housing on, one of the screws was missing. Well, as I was using the chainsaw, I realized what had happened because the other one worked its way loose too. So it was the vibration. So over the years, the course of years, the vibration of the chainsaw had shaken that screw loose and was shaking the other one loose. Well, we see in our passage that that's what Satan in this world are attempting to do with you when it comes to your faith in Christ. They're, they're trying to shake your faith in Christ loose. Throughout this life, you're, you're, you're being shaken. And again, our enemy is hoping that eventually you will let your faith in Christ go. So hear the word of the Lord, Luke 22, 31 through 46. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus is about to go to the cross. In fact, in our passage next week, he's going to get arrested. And that's going to start that process of being wrongfully uh, accused and condemned and, and murdered on the cross. And that process, it's going to serve as a test for the disciples. So their, their faith is going to be shaken. And their experience wasn't unique. All Christians experience trials of various kinds. All Christians experience this kind of testing. Again, Satan in the world and even your own sinful flesh, they're trying to shake your faith in Christ out of your hands. So understanding that, how do we escape temptation as Christians? without losing our faith in Christ. Well, our passage gives at least five ways, and this is the way we'll look at the passage. So first, don't underestimate the devil or the world. It's the first thing Jesus uh, tells us. Second, don't overestimate your own spiritual abilities. Third, know that Jesus prays for you. Fourth, pray for yourself. And fifth, pray for your fellow members. So again, the first thing Jesus teaches us in this passage is as Christians, don't underestimate the devil. Don't underestimate the world. Look at how our passage begins again. Verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Jesus is talking to Simon, who's also called Peter, and he's reminding him about, about Satan. He's reminding him about the devil. So the Bible clearly teaches there's these angels who God created to serve him and glorify him. And a group of them defected and rebelled. And the leader of that group is, is this individual that the Bible calls the devil or the accuser. Here he's called Satan. 
And Satan hates God. And so what that means is he also hates God's people. And so Jesus says, Satan is going to try to attack you, Peter. That's what he tells Peter here right off the bat. Now, notice a couple of things. First of all, to do anything to Peter, Satan has to wait on God's approval. Satan has to wait on God to sign off on it, his permission. He can't just do something. He has to demand it before the Lord. So the way that a toddler will make certain demands, but that toddler has to wait on that grown-up to actually consent to do that thing. It's the same thing we see with Satan. We see it in the story of Job in the Old Testament. So remember, Satan can't harass Job. He can't do anything to Job until God grants him permission. That's the same kind of thing we, we see here. That's because God is in charge of every detail of the universe. So oftentimes in the world, you may have experienced this as you talk to non-Christians. Sometimes in the world, people think, okay, there's these two powers. One is good, that's the Lord. And one of them is bad, that's Satan. And they're sort of in this fight between one another, but they're basically equally matched. That could not be less true. That's not true. No, Satan, he's a created thing. He's just a creature. He only gets to do anything he does by the permission of God. I love that one pastor in Maine, he used to say it this way. He would say, Satan is a created thing like a carrot. Isn't that good? In that way, Satan's the same as a carrot. He's a created thing. He is, he is fundamentally different from the Lord. So he has to ask God's permission. But second, look at the things Satan wants to do to Peter. He says, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So this is talking about the process where farmers would separate the wheat from the outer casing, what's called the chaff. And oftentimes this image is, is used in scripture for the suffering that God's people will experience. Because suffering is something that shakes our lives. And when you get shaken and you're holding on to things, you will let go of the things that are less important to you. The thing you're retaining is the thing that is most important. So when I have multiple grocery bags or when I've got an armful of things, I sort of in my brain understand which hand is holding the breakable thing. So that if I am gonna drop something, okay, I'm gonna hold on to that thing because I don't want it to break. It's the valuable thing. Of course, the Lord understands that's what happens when we're shaken in this life. We will let go of the things that are less important. We're left holding on to whatever is most important to us. Well, Satan's trying to shake loose Peter's faith in Christ. He, he's wanting to test Peter's faith. And he does the same thing with you. He does the same thing with me. Listen to what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan would love nothing more than to put you in that sifter and shake you until you let go of your faith in Christ and you lose it. And Jesus is making it clear to Peter that that is something to be kept in mind. Don't underestimate Satan. He's not as powerful as God. He's more powerful than you, at least on your own, apart from the Lord's help. Not only that, but you think about his track record. Satan, ever since Genesis 3, and that's the first time he gave it a shot with people, because those were the first people that he had available to him. Since Genesis 3, Satan has successfully tempted to sin every human he has ever come across, except one. And that human was fundamentally different from us because he wasn't just fully man, he was also fully God. So for humans like us, Satan's track record is 100%. He's batting a thousand. He's never missed it. So be aware of him. A passage in 1 Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. He will tempt you to let go of your trust in Christ. So we don't want to underestimate him. But he's not the only one we have to worry about. We also shouldn't underestimate the world. Look at what Jesus warns the disciples about in verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Now you might remember this. He, he's calling their attention back to Luke chapter 10. You remember that's when he sends out those 70 disciples and he gives them instructions. So they're going out to preach the gospel and he tells them these particular things and in particular, he says, you don't have to take these certain supplies. 
And he lists those here. Basically, he was saying, God will provide those things for you on the fly. You don't have to worry about taking that knapsack. You don't have to worry about taking provision for yourself. But now Jesus is saying, but now you need to do it different. He's, he's making a pivot here. Verse 36. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So Jesus is saying, from now on, I want you to do it differently. I want you to prepare for the work of spreading the gospel. He says, take the money bag and the knapsack and even buy a sword. So, so why the change? How come before in Luke 10, he says, go out, don't worry about gathering these things. You'll be fine. But now he's saying, okay, don't do that anymore. Now I want you to make preparations. I want you to gather this stuff together. So why the change? We're told in the next verse, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Okay, he's quoting Isaiah 53, talking about the future Messiah. Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. And it makes clear to God's people that the coming Messiah would end up being treated as if he was a sinner. That's what it means here when it says numbered with the transgressors. Remember, a transgressor is just a sinner. You're crossing over into disobedience. You're transgressing. He was numbered with the transgressors. And that's exactly what's about to happen with Jesus. He's about to be arrested and sentenced as a criminal. People are going to treat Jesus like he is a sinner. But, but see, it's not just the world that numbered him with the transgressors. Much more significantly, he's numbered with the transgressors by God, which is an astounding thing because Jesus couldn't be further from a transgressor. He's about to be numbered with the transgressors by God. And that's what the cross is all about. God the Father was sending Jesus to the cross to treat Jesus like a sinner. That's what was happening when he was hanging on the cross. That's why he died. That's why Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus understood the most significant thing he was experiencing wasn't the physical pain, and it wasn't anything that was being administered by those people. No, the most significant thing was he was being treated by his father like he was a sinner. God the Father was turning his back on God the Son because he was treating Jesus like we deserve to be treated. And the reason all that happened was so that your sins and my sins could be paid for. That's why Jesus was being treated like a sinner. Pastor Charlie quoted it this morning in our Philippian study. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that talks exactly about this exchange. For our sake, he, God, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So in other words, God treated Jesus like a sinner, even though he had never sinned. For our sake, he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he treats Jesus like a sinner so he can treat you like you're righteous. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. And of course, for those of us who are Christians, it's our faith alone in Christ alone that transferred our sins to him and transferred his righteousness to us. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus. As a church, this is what we have to hold out to you. It's really all we have to hold out to you that has any lasting value is the good news of the gospel that every one of your sins can be forgiven through Christ, his work on your behalf, if, you're, if you'll merely trust in him for your salvation. So come talk to me about that if, if you're willing or to one of the other pastors. Because in an instant, all of your sins, past, present, and future, and the guilt of those sins, it can all be taken away through Christ, paying for those sins on the cross on your behalf. Okay, but, but what does Jesus being treated like a sinner, remember what we were talking about big picture wise, how does Jesus being treated like a sinner, what does that have to do with them making preparations, right? To take a bag, to take a sword, to do these particular things. Here it is. The fact that the world put Jesus in the category of transgressor means they will do the same thing with us. That's why he pivots here with his instruction. The fact that the world put Jesus in the category of transgressor means they will do the same thing to his followers. The world hated Jesus, and so the world broadly will hate Christians. John 15, verse 20, a helpful verse. In particular, if you struggle with, with fear of man, 
which is just the way the Bible talks about thinking people are more significant than the Lord is. So if, if you were one way we would talk about it probably more generally is peer pressure, maybe at work, if there's times where you think oh, I, I, I need to be faithful to Christ in this way, but maybe you don't always do it because you're worried what other people will think about you. This is a helpful verse to keep in mind. John 15 verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So in verses 35 through 38 in our passage, Jesus is telling us to be prepared for persecution. So he, he's saying, don't underestimate the world, the, the culture all around us. The culture will do the same thing that Satan is trying to do. It will try to shake loose your faith in Christ. In fact, that's exactly what happens to Peter. So in verse 33, Peter makes this promise to Jesus. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's very confident. Jesus, I will be faithful to you. Look at what happens, though. Verse 56, we'll look at that next week, but let's look at it now to understand this point. Verse 56, then a servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. So Peter is going to lie. He's going to disassociate himself from Jesus. Why? Because of pressure from the world. He doesn't want to be persecuted. Isn't that crazy? He's so confident that he's going to stand up for Jesus. This is a girl. She's not even grown. So a middle school girl probably is what it takes for Peter to instantly let go of Christ because he fears the world. He fears that persecution. And that kind of persecution can shake our faith loose. So beware of this. Know that, that persecution in different forms and fashions, it, it will be part of your Christian experience and mine until we die or until Christ returns. And it will tempt you to let go of Christ. And those temptations, that persecution can come from extended family or coworkers or government or neighbors or the company you work for. But, but don't underestimate the world. Don't underestimate Satan. But the second thing we see here, don't overestimate your own spiritual abilities. Jesus teaches us, don't overestimate your own spiritual abilities. At the beginning of our passage, when Jesus tells Peter Satan is going to tempt him, look again at Peter's response. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He's pretty confident pretty confident in his own abilities. And, and it makes sense, at least from a human perspective. Jesus has been, or Peter has been traveling around with Jesus for three years now. He's one of the closest disciples, right? That group of 12. But more than that, he's on the inner, inner circle. James, Peter, and John. So there were lots of earthly reasons for Peter to have some self-confidence in his own spiritual abilities. And if you're honest, most of us in this room probably relate to that. So a lot of us have been Christians for decades. Many of us have served in ministry capacities. Many folks in this room have, have been officers in the church or are currently officers in the church. So, so we understand what that feels like to have some earthly reason for, for confidence in our own spiritual abilities. But look at what Jesus tells Peter, verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Peter's confident in his spiritual abilities. Jesus points out, it won't even be 24 hours, Peter, before you are willing to let me go, before you'll deny me, not just once, but three times. Now, Scripture doesn't give you and me a specific prophecy like this with a timetable on it, right, about when we'll deny the Lord. But Scripture does tell you that as a Christian, you are going to turn away from Christ. You are going to sin against him. Let me read a handful of passages. Sometimes you might run across folks from, from certain denominations that talk about perfectionism. You may have heard that term, the idea, even if you haven't heard the term, you'll understand the idea, which is that as Christians, eventually we get to a point where we don't sin any longer, at least not self-consciously. These are passages of scripture that are helpful to remember with that category as well. It kind of fits under all of this, but we are going to sin against Christ. I'll read you a handful of passages. First John chapter one, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 
James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Psalm 143, verse 2. For no one living is righteous before you, O Lord. And then 1 Kings 8, 46. So great because it's so short and sweet. 1 Kings 8, 46. There is no one who does not sin. Couldn't be any clearer. There is no one who does not sin. It, it doesn't matter how highly you assess your spiritual abilities. The Bible says you're a sinner. And as a sinner, you will stumble. And the times where we stumble, that's us turning our back on Christ. We'll talk about this more in a second. But because of the disciples' spiritual inability, look at what Jesus tells them to do in verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus gives them one job to do. Again, we're thinking about our spiritual inability. He gives them one job to do. That doesn't seem very hard, does it? Do this one thing. Pray. But look at what happens. Verse 45. And when he, Jesus, rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them praying. No, he found them sleeping for sorrow. It's amazing, right? One thing they have to do. They don't do it. They, they actually do about the most opposite thing you can do from that thing, which is just to sleep, just to turn off. But you know what the thing is? In your Christian life, you will do the same thing, and I will do the same thing. If Jesus were to condense our spiritual responsibilities down to just one thing, we wouldn't be able to do that thing perfectly. Not, not in this life, not before we die or before Christ returns. There'd be times where, where we would fail to do it out of laziness or, or selfishness. Or there'd be times where we'd go through the outward actions, but doing it for the wrong reasons to get glory for ourselves, certainly not to glorify the Lord. There, there is no area of your spiritual life where you never fall asleep. We're like the disciples in that way. But see, that's what the gospel is all about. We can never perfectly do what the Lord requires of us. That's why Christ did it on our behalf. And again, it's trust alone in Christ alone that gives us that righteousness, makes us God's children. He died for our shortcomings. And, and this is where the second point and the first point of this passage intersect. In fact, they usually go together. If you are underestimating the power of Satan in the world, you're typically overestimating your own spiritual abilities. It's kind of like a seesaw. So the less you think about Satan in the world as being significant, and having influence over you, the more you think about your own spiritual abilities. But we don't want to do those things. That's exactly what we see here with Peter and the disciples. They're underestimating the devil and the world's ability to shake loose their faith in Christ, and they're overestimating their own abilities. Jesus teaches us, don't do either of these things. So, okay, if the devil and the world, if they're a great danger to our spiritual life, greater than we normally give them credit for, and if our own spiritual abilities aren't as great as we oftentimes think they are, well, then what are we supposed to do? If we can't count on ourselves, then, then who can we count on? Well, we can only count on the Lord. And this is exactly what prayer teaches us. Prayer happens when we turn away from our own spiritual abilities and we're asking for help from the Lord. That's why prayer is so great. It's not only that we, we get to actually ask things from the Lord, and he oftentimes answers those requests. But see, even the mechanism of prayer is just a good reminder that we, we don't have the ability in ourselves. We have to turn and ask for help from another. And so that's what Jesus focuses on for the rest of our passages, that we need prayer. In, in fact, prayer brackets our passage. You see it in verse 32 and verse 46, and then it shows up in the middle in verse 40. Now, the, the first thing about prayer Jesus teaches us here is that you need Jesus to pray for you. And this is our third point this morning. Know that Jesus prays for you. Look at what he tells Peter, verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So Jesus is telling Peter, this bad thing is coming your way, but... So he's transitioning here. And, and if you feel comfortable writing in your Bible, it could be good sometimes to circle a transition word like that because he's about to pivot. That's a helpful thing. But it's going to be okay, basically. And the reason Jesus says it will be okay is because Jesus has 
prayed for Simon Peter. So the, the devil's trying to shake him like a piece of wheat, hoping his faith in Christ will fall off. But Jesus has prayed for him that that would not happen. Now, imagine Jesus praying for you particularly. So imagine this week, if there's something spiritually difficult that's happening with you, imagine if Jesus showed up and he's in the room and he is praying for you. Imagine the encouragement that you would feel. You would talk about that story for the rest of your life, that Christ had prayed for you. But see, this is the good news for us as Christians. If you're trusting in Christ alone for your sins to be covered, then Jesus prays for you. Isn't that incredible? Jesus prays for you. Let me show you where we see that. It's multiple places. I'll read one verse, at least now. Romans 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So Jesus, the God-man, the most significant person to ever walk on the face of the earth, he prays for you the same way that he prays for Peter here. In, in fact, you remember how Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53? In verse 37 of our passage, listen to what else Isaiah says in that same chapter, Isaiah 53, about the coming Savior. This is Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of man and makes intercession for the transgressors. So even though we don't think about it that often, Jesus isn't just the sacrifice who died for us. He's not just the king who leads us. He's not just the prophet who speaks God's word to us. He's also the priest who prays for us. Praise the Lord. And you know what the Bible says that he's praying for you? He's praying that you'll be kept spiritually safe. That's what Christ is praying for you. Now, there's lots of things that somebody could be praying for you. This is the one that scripture says Christ is praying for you that you'll be kept spiritually safe. He's praying that the world and Satan and your own sinful flesh would not be able to shake your faith in Christ out of your hands. Listen to Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25. They were told Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the picture we're given is Jesus is standing with God the Father. He's interceding for us. He's praying for us that we will be saved. Jesus is able to save those that he intercedes for. So basically, he's praying that we'll get from point A to point B. Point A is where we are now. We're sinners in a sinful world with an enemy, the devil. He's praying we'll get from A to B. B is heaven holding on to Christ the entire time, that we'll get through this difficult life with our faith in Christ intact. And Jesus knows that that's the exact kind of prayer we need. Because again, he knows how powerful Satan and the world are. He knows how weak we are. And here's the really, really good news for us this morning. Jesus's prayers are always effective. Isn't that good? So you put that first thing together with that second thing, that is good news for us. He prays that you'll make it through this life holding on to Christ, which is the only way any of us is getting into heaven. He prays that we're holding on to Jesus and his prayers are always effective. Look at verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So you can see that Jesus knows Peter will deny him, but Jesus also knows he will turn again. He knows he will turn again. Jesus believes that God will answer that prayer of Jesus's on Peter's behalf. He knew that Peter would repent. Peter would recognize his sin. He'd ask forgiveness for that sin. He would work to turn away from that sin. And this is just the, the regular rhythm of the Christian life, right? So as Christians, we sin, we realize we've sinned, and we repent. That's, that's what Christians do. And, and in terms of that rhythm, the repentance part really is what separates true Christians from people who are just Christians in name only. It's that repentance part. Because remember, Peter isn't the only one who's going to deny Jesus. Judas is there. He's about to deny Christ too. He's, he's already set those things in motion. But the difference, of course, is that Peter repents. 
And that's why repentance should be so important to you if you say you're a Christian, because Christians aren't just sinners. Christians are repentant sinners. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a repentant sinner. So Jesus makes it clear Peter is going to sin against him, but, but then he goes on to turn. And the reason Jesus says he will turn is because Jesus is prayer. He knows that his prayer for believers is always effective. So as a Christian, the fact that Jesus prays for you to get to the end of life with your saving faith intact means it will happen. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Jesus will sustain you to the end. And one of the primary means he uses to do that is prayer on your behalf. So if you're a Christian, Jesus does the same thing for you he does for Peter. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Our salvation is secure because of Jesus's intercession. You need Jesus to pray for you, so, so know that he does. Praise God. But, but Jesus makes it just as clear, you also need to pray for yourself. And this is our fourth point. Pray for yourself. To escape temptation, pray for yourself. In the section that begins with verse 39, Jesus and, and the disciples, they're headed up to the Mount of Olives so Jesus can pray, begin preparing for his arrest, which is just about to take place. Look again at what he tells the disciples to do. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he says, temptation's coming your way. It's got to be the same thing he's talking about with Peter. He knows his arrest is coming. He knows the world is going to turn on a dime and all of a sudden be totally opposed to Christ. He knows the disciples are going to be tempted to let go of Jesus because of the fear of persecution. And so he knows that they need to pray for that, for themselves. And, and the prayer he's talking about, it's very particular again. Verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation or give into temptation, we could say. And this by far is the best prayer you can pray for yourself. It's the best prayer you can pray for yourself. So in this passage, Jesus tells his disciples to pray for themselves in verse 40. For this thing, that your faith will be secure, that you won't give into temptation. He repeats it in verse 46. It's what Jesus himself prays for them in verse 32. We saw it all the way back in Luke chapter 11 in the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11 verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. We need to pray that we won't give into temptation by sinning. So the question for us is, how often do we pray this prayer? How often do you pray that prayer for yourself, that God would keep you from sinning? And how does the frequency of that prayer compare to the frequency of other kinds of prayers that you pray for yourself. Our kids have this big Lego book that goes through the history of Lego, which is pretty fascinating. But one thing it does is it shows all these fancy Lego sets that are based on real things. So there's like a Lego Eiffel Tower. There's a Lego Statue of Liberty. There's a Lego White House, all these things. And one thing it always says is it gives the, the ratio. So it'll say, okay, this race car is one to 24. So for every inch, or because Lego is a, a European company, every centimeter, one of those, it's 24 centimeters, the real thing is. So it gives that ratio. I think, I think it's helpful to stand back and look at our prayer life in the same way. What is the ratio of prayer for our spiritual safety versus prayer for material benefit or for physical health? Other things that are all good things. But what's the ratio between those prayers? The, the Lord wants us to continually pray for all sorts of things. But of the prayers we pray for ourselves, there should probably be a pretty considerable drop-off between prayer for our spiritual well-being and prayer for our physical well-being or our material well-being. The, the prayer that God would heal you of sickness, undoubtedly important. But this prayer for you to avoid giving into temptation, far more important. The, the prayer for you to have a better work situation, important. Pray for that thing. But, but the prayer for you to avoid giving into temptation, more important. Let me give you two quick reasons why we know that's the case. First is just logical. Your earthly life will last maybe for some people in this room another six decades. Maybe, right? Your spiritual life will last for eternity. 
just logically that makes sense, right? So prayer for our spiritual health should take the priority there. But second, we know this is the most important prayer we can pray for ourselves because it's the prayer we're told Jesus prays for us and he does everything right all the time. It's the prayer he prays for us. So let's pray this way. Pray that God would give you strength to turn away from temptation. Maybe even as a helpful practice, just say to yourself, I'm going to pray for that before I pray for other things. It's just a sentence, right? It just takes a second. So when you feel compelled to pray for something that comes up in life, what if you just try, maybe not even forever, but for a little while, just try to train yourself. But first, I'm going to pray that the Lord would keep me from temptation, would keep me faithful to Christ, would keep me holding on to Jesus. But, but we should notice something else here. This is significant too. Oftentimes our outward circumstances and our temptation to sin are connected. Look at Jesus's example here. Look at verse 41. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This is an amazing passage of scripture. So it's, it's, it's easy for us sometimes to think that going to the cross was easy for Jesus. That's not because we think it would have been easy for us, but we just think, oh, but this is Jesus. So it, it must not have been that big of a deal. No, going to the cross was a horrible thought for Jesus. In fact, it was such a horrible thought. In verse 44, we're told it produces this physiological reaction. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus was scared and anxious about what was coming his way. Now, it wasn't sinful fear. It wasn't sinful anxiety, but it was still fear and anxiety. He does not want this thing that is coming. And isn't it encouraging to be reminded that Jesus experienced the same emotions that you experience? That is good news for us. That's an encouraging thing. So the times when, when you're really anxious and worried about something, Jesus understands that because he had those same emotions. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of his intense fear and, and anxiety, look again at what he asked God to do. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You might see that and think, what does that mean, remove this cup from me? Well, he's drawn on a whole bunch of Old Testament verses about God's judgment, where God's judgment in the Old Testament is spoken about like a cup that his enemies will have to drink. And see, what he's saying is he's asking that God would spare him from that. He's asking God would spare him from having to go to the cross. And it looks like the reason he's praying that prayer is because he knows it'll present him with temptation to sin to disobey the father by, by fleeing from the cross. The reason I think we can see that is because in verse 43, God sends this angel to strengthen him. But, but what Jesus shows us here is that it's valid to pray for God to change your situation, to help keep you from temptation. That's what Jesus does. And again, he never does anything wrong. So it's, it's okay to pray that your boss would be more kind to you so you aren't tempted to unrighteous anger. That's an okay prayer. It's okay to pray that, that your daughter would behave better so you're not as, as tempted to unrighteous anger. It's, it's okay to pray you'd feel better physically so you're not tempted to bitterness. It's okay to ask God to change your situation. And it's okay for Jesus to pray that God would take away the cross. But look at what Jesus says immediately after he makes this request. Middle of verse 42. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So he's asking for God to change his outward situation, but Jesus ultimately trusts in God's will. So in the next breath, he says, but I trust you. So if you don't do it this way, I'll remain faithful. I'll continue to trust you. Whatever you do is right. And Jesus, of course, he's not saying this about whether he gets a job promotion. He's saying this about his imminent murder. It's intense, but he trusts the Lord with it. And even after the prayer, Jesus still gets arrested. And that's helpful to see, too. Even the most righteous man to walk on the earth didn't have all of his prayers answered the way that he wanted them to be answered. He still has to go to the cross. But, but again, look at how God provides for him. Verse 43. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So you see what God's done here. God's not going to change Jesus's outward circumstances. But, but in answer to Jesus's prayer, he provides for him spiritually. He sends this angel to strengthen him. God oftentimes will not answer your prayer to change your outward situation. If you've been a Christian long and all, you, you know that. But if you're a believer, he'll always offer you the means to turn from that temptation. But, but in this passage, the avenue to that help is prayer. That's why Jesus is praying so much. And as verse 44 says, so earnestly. Of course, in contrast to Jesus, look again at what the disciples do. So remember, when they first get to the Mount of Olives in verse 40, Jesus tells them to pray that they'll escape temptation. Look again at what he finds them doing, verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he told the disciples to pray. He comes back They're They're not praying. They're sleeping. We're told why they're sleeping. The end of verse 45 tells us they were sleeping for sorrow. They were sleeping because they were so worried about their situation. And can't you relate to that? Maybe it's not sleep. Maybe it's food. Easy to go to food sometimes. Easy to go to entertainment. But there's something that's difficult in life. And what we do oftentimes, it's like our flesh is spring-loaded to do this. We just kind of try to forget that thing, try to comfort ourselves with other stuff in the world. Stuff that's good on its own, but not when we use it that way. So food or drink or entertainment or relationships or sleeping like they are here. They're sleeping because they're so worried about this situation. Of course, that's a choice before us always. Difficulty in life will come. It'll bring with it temptation to sin. So so how will we respond when you're suffering in some particular way? will, Will you try to cope with it yourself through sleep or entertainment or eating or whatever? Or will you pray for strength? to avoid sin. You know how many times you'll escape temptation by means of sleeping or, or watching Netflix or eating a stuffed crust pizza, all of which I praise the Lord for all three of those things. Such good things. But but the amount of time that I'll, that I'll escape temptation by those means, zero. You know the amount of times you'll escape temptation by means of prayer? A lot. Verse 46, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So pray for yourself. But as we close, the teaching in this passage isn't just for your exclusive benefit, right? It's not just individualistic here. It's also so you can care for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Look back to the very beginning of our passage, to the instruction Jesus gives to Peter, verse 32. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus doesn't just have an interest in Peter holding on to Christ. He has an interest in Peter helping his fellow brothers and sisters hold on to Christ. He says, strengthen your brothers. And this command is for us too, especially the the members of Cornerstone Baptist Church in this context. As members of this church, we need one another to help hold on to Christ. So church, strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, how do we do that? Lots of different ways. We'll focus on the main application Jesus comes back to in this passage over and over again, which is prayer. So strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ by praying for them. Pray for your fellow members. This is a theme picked up elsewhere in the Bible. Let me read you an Old Testament passage, New Testament passage. 1 Samuel 12, 23. This is what Samuel says to Israel. He says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Listen to what James says in his epistle, James 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Listen to our church covenant. We will not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. And as always, Jesus is the best example for us. Verse 32 but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So pray for your fellow members that their faith will not fail. And there's a list of our members down the hall posted outside the the room where we have the Christian growth group for you to pray for. Just to to make it easier for myself. uh, So this is something I did in Maine where I just printed a a membership booklet and it's actually probably two months before I got here, I just printed one out for Cornerstone just so I could have it. 
So, uh, I, you know, I'm not the godliest pastor in the world, but I'll tell you this. The most helpful thing for me to care for fellow church members has been having a list of church members to pray for. I just keep it in my Bible. And when I pray, I always try to do a couple of things. One of them is I always pray for those spiritual needs first. So I may know that your knee hurts. I may know that, that, that your job situation is hard or one of your kids is being rebellious. And I will pray for those things. That's not the first thing I pray for you. The first thing I pray for you is that you will hold on to Jesus, that you will continue to trust in Christ in the midst of all of that difficulty, because that's what you need more than anything else. That's what I need more than anything else. And so I just split up the membership. We've got 48 members right now, so I split it up pretty evenly. And day by day, I'm praying for enough folks to pray for everybody in the course of a week. Now, you don't have to take a list like that and do it that way. You could pray for one member a day or a couple of members a day. But however you do it, practically, be sure you're praying for your fellow members. Now I've got one of these and I've given them to the, the elders. If you're interested in this and you think, oh, this would help me. This would help me to pray for my fellow members. Just send me an email or come grab me. I'll print one off. But however you do it, be sure you're praying for your fellow members and, and pray that as they're tempted by the world and the devil, they will forsake sin in order to hold on to Christ. Because we have an enemy in the devil and an enemy in the sinful world around us and, and even our own sinful flesh that are constantly trying to shake loose our faith in Christ. We know we don't have the resources in our sinful nature to hold on to him, but, but praise God, the Lord does. And one chief way we access God's help is through prayer. So pray for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for yourself and, and be encouraged that your Savior, Jesus Christ, is standing with God the Father this moment, interceding for you, praying that you'd hold on to Christ. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for our Savior. We are astounded at how, how multidimensional his care for us is. Father, we would be tempted if we gave our life for somebody else and then rose from the grave we would be tempted to think, okay, I have done enough. This is good enough what I have given for this person, but, but Christ lives to make intercession for us. It is an incredible thing, a thing that we don't deserve in the least. We're so thankful, Father. We know our only hope is Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful that he's such a good example for us, and we pray we'd follow his example as we see it set forward in this passage we would pray for ourselves regularly that we would turn from temptation and continue holding on to Jesus by faith alone in him. Father, we pray we would pray that for our fellow members in this church. Father, we're so thankful for the, the path of prayer, that it connects us to you, that it reminds us of the gospel. And Father, we trust Jesus's promise that for those of us who are trusting in him alone for our salvation, he he will take us to the end. He will get us from point A to point B for our good and for the glory of the Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand together. We have a prayer that we can sing. Abide with me. Uh, hopefully be helpful and reiterate what we just heard from the word of God. Joys grow dim, it's glory. 
glories pass away, change and decay it all around I see. Every passing hour, what but thy grace can for the tempter's power? Who like thyself, my God, can strengthen me through cloud and sunshine? standing for the benediction, a good word from God for us from 2 Peter 3, 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.